Hello, beautiful listeners, and thank you for tuning in to Writing Away to Wellness, a podcast produced by Girls Right Now and hosted by me, Sally Familia. Writing Away to Wellness is a podcast where Girls Right Now community members of all ages, racial and cultural backgrounds, careers, and crafts engage in holistic conversations about wellness in relation to the arts of writing. From avid journalers to authors committed to passing down the tools they have learned to survive the silly world, Writing Away to Wellness is the bridge that leads us to gentle hearts and creative minds. Hello, everyone. This is Marjorie Hanna with Girls Right Now. I am here this evening with a very special guest. We have with us today the founding director of the Writer's House Intern Program, Michael Vigiez. And I'm super excited to have you here with me today. Um, met you a few months ago at this point, and we had a very candid conversation then. So just kick things off. Um, could you just uh, tell me a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? Sure, sure. I'm from the South Bronx, um, from the West Farms Housing Projects there. Uh, East Tremont on the 2-5 line. Um, went to parochial schools, local parochial schools. Um, graduated from Hunter College uh, with both a BA, a joint BA, MA in theater. Oh, okay. I didn't realize you were a theater guy. I'm a theater guy. Before I was a publishing guy, I was a theater guy. Okay. All right. So was that kind of your career goals um, going into college? Uh... Uh, no. Before that, I went to school in Florida to study how to fly planes and got booted out of there and uh, came back and rethought about, you know, uh, gave a lot of thought to what I really wanted to do. And, and started at Hunter thinking that I'd be the next great American novelist. Um, took an intro to theater class with a gentleman named Ed Wilson, who was, was also the drama critic for the New Republic. And he took a shine to me and we were talking one day and I think I was trying to convince him that I shouldn't have to write the final paper. And he, he made a deal with me uh, since he knew I had literary aspirations. He was like, write a short play and uh, I'll accept that instead of the paper. And I went, yeah, how hard could it be? And I wrote, I wrote a short play that ended up getting produced at the college. And then uh, it won a, a, big, a big grant and an award and we traveled the tri-state area with it and by the time we got back i had decided i was going to be i was going to try to be a playwright and so that was kind of the first or second stanza in 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 my life in my professional life anyway okay so you went from like you said studying plants Plays. Uh, excuse me. Uh, no, excuse me. I went from studying studying to fly planes. Oh, planes. Okay, I was way off. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, I went, it's, it's I went to flight school. I went to the Florida Institute of Technology to study flight technology and aviation management. And uh, uh, 
got thrown out of there uh, uh, pretty unceremoniously uh, and and regrouped and uh, started at Hunter in what is now known as McCulley. Okay. All right. Awesome. Which is pretty competitive. Yeah, I guess. You know, it's it's a big deal now, but it probably wasn't as big a deal in, you know, the 30s when I... Uh, uh, so, so uh, I don't know if I'd get in now, but got in then. Okay. So you're writing plays, you graduate, and um, how did you end up at the writer's house? Yeah, that I was, I was failing as a playwright in as much as I couldn't really get a lot of traction. I was, I didn't write that play that delivered me from off, off Broadway to off Broadway. Um, that it took me a long time to, to stop enjoying being a young playwright on the rise. And I woke up one day and I was uh, a not so young playwright uh, 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 anymore. And, and opportunities dried up for me. Uh, the, and there weren't a lot of them, but, but I was like, hmm, what else can I do? And I had been kind of making my way by being a, a playwright and theater artist on the off-off Broadway level and, and teaching college and being an adjunct mm -hmm. uh, and cobbling an existence in New York that way, uh, very hands to mouth. And um, um, a friend of mine was working at Writer's House and mentioned the opportunity and said, hey, the guy who founded the place is just like you, Michael. He's a failed playwright and academic. And um, um, I put, I put, I guess, my cover and resume and all of that together, and came in and and interviewed with Al. And I think he probably said hi. And then I spoke for three hours and uh, 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 broke his will. And I think he had no other recourse than to to hire me to shut me up. So uh, that's how it all really started. And it so and it's been a while. So when you first joined Writer's House, yeah. what were you doing? Say that again. What were you? Uh, what was your job? Well, I was going to be. I was. I assisted him. I worked the front desk, um, and did that for a long time. I didn't want to be an agent. Uh, I I discovered I wasn't very good at it. That that the books that I wanted to do were going to be very, very hard for me to sell. That I was really interested in a dragon book if the kids flying on it looked like one of us. Or if, you're going to, if I'm going to do a vampire book, the vampire has to look like one of us. Um, that that book wasn't going to be big and successful and 
that to really be the best agent, you got to be good at a particular kind of book that I had no interest in. Um, that that wasn't really a Michael Mejia's job. That that the problem wasn't that I wasn't good yet. It said I didn't want to be good at that. If that's what being good meant. And uh, I founded the Writers House Intern Program in 2000. And that kind of became something that was interesting to me. So I was the receptionist, office manager, director of the program. And then it kept evolving and growing and becoming a bigger and bigger thing in the consciousness of the industry. It started to serve as a pipeline. Um, and it became a bigger and bigger part of my portfolio. These days I work on, on the operation side. So I help the, the CFO, um, and the, the, uh, VP of business affairs and run not only the writer's house intern program, but the writer's house mentor initiative which is something that I, I grew from the ground up, I guess, a couple of years back now, three years, maybe that program's three years old. And it deals specifically with um, publishing aspirants from the BIPOC space. So this is really interesting. So, well, first off, I just have to ask, do you, do you find that there's been a shift in selling books with the kid who looks like one of us, you know, flying on the dragons. I guess that's my first question. Do you feel like there's been an industry shift? Um, and I guess, you know, my second question would be, you know, considering you are grooming talent to enter these spaces that hopefully sort of change the lens in which we are assessing what is publishable and what's not, which I know kind of comes down to the bottom line at the end of the day, but what ways do you feel, if any, things have changed? We're talking about it more. I think we went from flat out denials of what was very obviously true to talking about it in more meaningful ways. And sometimes these talks have legs. Sometimes, you know, we get a little traction and sometimes uh, there are improvements in areas. But is it enough? It isn't nearly enough. It isn't nearly, nearly enough. Um, there's more and there are more people who look like us in the way that you know, six cents is more than a nickel, you know, mm -hmm. uh, sure mm -hmm. that more we're, we're populating publishing more now than it's, than in its 500 year history. But when you consider it's been 500 years, uh, it's, it's not a very good showing, right? That, that when you look at our white counterparts, how well represented are we? against that, against that, that 
before the Lee and Lowe survey, or what the first Lee and Lowe survey, do you know the Lee and Lowe survey? Could you elaborate a little bit? Sure. Lee and Lowe is a publisher, and they took it upon themselves to kind of lead the charge around diversity. And it was really their, their study, a study they commissioned that was published in 2015 that articulated what we all knew. There aren't a lot of BIPOC people in publishing, right? And uh, uh, I would imagine fueled somewhat by shame, uh, you know, we, we fancy ourselves liberal progressives after all. Um, we started to talk about it in, in substantive ways. Now, that report stated this, that publishing was 5% Black, 6% Latinx, 7% Asian, five, six, seven. Um, a second report, a second survey was commissioned by Lee and Lowe that was published in 2020, five years later. And between 2015 and 2020, I must have done a hundred, and I remember this, 137 diversity days, events around that, in that time, in that five-year span. And the new report told us this. We went from 5% Black people to 6% Black people, from 6% Latinx people to 7% Latinx people. And the biggest jump was Asian from 7% to 10%. And if you look at the composition of the suburbs, if you look at the composition of a lot of different things, right, what that's a better measurement of is comfortability mm -hmm. how comfortable our white counterparts are around us in other words before they start moving out before there is an expression of concern that you will see that those things align if you look at any survey from the urban urban league or the NAACP that you'll see that the numbers match up around that. So, so it's probably a better gauge and measure of, of this simple and delicate truth that we move at the speed of somebody else's comfort. Mm. Wow. First, I just want to pause and acknowledge that you kind of mentioned Al saw himself in you. So, as you're working with young people now in this program, how much of yourself do you see in your participants? And um, because you're from the South Bronx. I am. So, all right. So, and then, so you're bringing obviously some real life experience and education into what you do. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of interested in how that can inform success. And you, you know, you mentioned like the comfortability of white people in publishing and how that kind of keeps the pace of how diverse these settings are. Um, so there's the skills that maybe you can talk about what it takes to make it. And then now you're here in this space mm -hmm. and what does it really take 
to stay there and be well while you're there, right? Because if, you know, you're there and once you're in the door, is it, you know, many of us, we don't really find it worthwhile, right? Like it's either you find it worthwhile and you have a North Star and you hang on or you don't. So can you maybe kind of speak towards um, all of that, which I know I kind of just... Sure. I'll try to answer that question and then you'll tell me how well I'm doing that when I talk to different groups, I'm called in to speak at the Big Five, I'm called in to uh, address this issue a lot, that I always start with the word will. It's the will of leadership. The will of leadership at Writer's House has always been there. That, that in the most important ways, that they are ready to resource this program they were willing to do this this might be an institution now or given now uh 23 years after the fact after 567 people have been placed out of this program but before all of that al and amy had to say yes and then simon and amy had to say yes and they backed it and they backed me from the very start. Way before we were talking about this, they were talking about this, the importance of that. And uh, so it's been very easy for me to work here, live my professional life here. Also, I'm from a completely different generation that, uh, and this is what I mean by that. Um, I have the talents and skills that delivered me to different social circles very early on. That I was eligible for educational opportunities that aren't afforded everyone I grew up with, not everyone. And so living and moving through white spaces was, was something I learned to do, that America is. There's a reason we were called minorities, and it was just the mathematical truth. We're close to that not being true, but, you know, certainly when I was, was in high school, it was the truth and negotiating those spaces was just another thing I had to become adept at. Mm -hmm. um, and the benefit of that is that I have requisite techniques. I have the techniques and methodologies in psychology and mental toughness that I don't think that a racist comment that's pointed in my direction is a reflection of me. I've never thought that. Mm -hmm. I've always thought it was a reflection of the person who said it. I didn't think it was a stain on my shirt. I thought it was a stain on theirs. And the way that I could prove that to myself always was by repeating it out loud to a room full of people when that person was present. And that person would always recoil because they didn't want that 
thing they said to be public. And if they were ready to stand by that, why wouldn't they want everyone to know? Why would they want it kept a secret? Why did, why did they want to disassociate themselves with it? They're the ones that said it, and it was unprompted. And so I learned that very early on, that they want to say those things, they want to use those words, they want to say what they're saying. Fine, that's about them. That's about them and never about me. And I'm never, I'm not going to give it a second thought. I think that we have a different generation now who's like, this person said something bad. I have to go write about it on Facebook or insert the social media platform and, you know, get, get supported by friends. What, whatever that answer is, um, um, and I don't know if that's healthy. I don't know. I don't know what that teaches us. I don't know what that teach, what it teaches that individual, because it was very easy for me. My goals were my goals, and my dreams were my dreams, and I didn't want anyone to deter for, for, for their bad words or their poor opinion of me. I'm a person of color in America. I know generally how people think of me. I know how people generally think of me. It may not be me specifically, Michael Mejia's. But when you say Puerto Ricans from the South Bronx, you're probably not thinking of somebody who's going to walk in with a Brooks Brothers jacket on, right? And whatever that means is whatever that means. And that's not about me. That they have to carry the weight of that. And I think it's funny how racism could twist our thinking because we make it our shame. And I simply didn't buy that cup of water. So how do you... So your program, you said it, it kind of focuses on, on prepping BIPOC, young BIPOC. Um, well, the Writer's House Mentor Initiative does. There are two programs. Okay. There's the longstanding Writer's House intern program, which has always had a BIPOC presence from Jump Street. How could it not, right? Um, um, but the Writer's House Mentor Initiative, which we founded in 2020, deals very specifically with the BIPOC experience in publishing. And do DEIB issues come up? Um, how do you, do you talk about how to navigate, you know, mostly white spaces and how to not internalize other people's um, projections or, you know, like that, that, no, because it's not really where my expertise is. Mm -hmm. So to go, don't internalize it. Let me tell you how not to do that. Is it what I can, what, what I'm qualified to do? I can certainly listen. And if there's a way to arrive at validation by just bearing witness and hearing that, wow, naturally at writer's house, Again, leadership has put in place ways for dealing with those types of issues on the very rare occasion they surface. But it starts with, you know, the will of leadership again to have that and enforce it. And I'm confident in our leadership. 
to do just that. And they the, the tone is created by them. And so, so in, in here, I've been fortunate enough to participate in the hiring processes and staffing for a generation. So a lot of the people that are junior staff, hell, at this point, even some senior staff really are out of my programs. And they're authentic allies. There are people who are plugged in. There are people who are sensitive. There are people who are staunchly anti-racist um, that are doing the reading and the work. That, But more than that, because that's an intellectual response. Mm-hmm. More than that, there's this. That is just simply the way they practice their lives. It's just simply that they have people, they're in relationships with people who look like us. And that's how they're different than their parents and the people who came before them. And the cycle, that's how really the cycle breaks. It isn't like, you know, I'm gonna take a Pilates and then I'm gonna stop doing Pilates, (laughs) you know? That it isn't that, it isn't a hobby. It's how you practice your life. And the, certainly the people that come through my programs, it's just simply the way they practice their lives. And it's odd for them to, for us to be absent. And that's the thing, mm-hmm. that our absence is normal. So we're always fighting to redefine normal. That's what the, That's why the question, can I help you, is loaded. When you're, when you're in a neighborhood that isn't your neighborhood, when you're walking on the sidewalk in a suburb, when you walk into a department store, that that can I help you is loaded because it really is what are you doing here? You don't look like you're here to shop. I don't believe that someone who looks like you is here, right? and that your intentions aren't nefarious, right? That's what that means. They don't actually want to help pick something out for my girlfriend. That's not what they're trying. <laughs> that's, that's not what they're trying. They're really going, hey, what are you doing here? Are you here to steal? Are you here to do something that I don't want you to do, right? They're just smiling when they say it. So do you, it sounds like, um, you know, you've spoken about comfortability and the way people live their lives. Is there also just, you know, I know I have a friend who, who heads an imprint that focuses on BIPOC publishing Mm -hmm. and um, I had a conversation with her and I, you know, I remember when she was just starting in publishing junior, she, you know, worked her, her way up, executive editor, had some really big wins. And so now she has um, her own um, at one of the big fives, right? And I asked her, like, why did you stick around? Because I, I did a little, you know, a, a short tenure in publishing. It wasn't really for me. Um, 
And she said, well, you know, when I came in, uh, she had a mentor who's a black woman. And I, I know this, uh, an editor who also I worked with, and she definitely just would mentor everyone if she could. And she did, if you had access to her, um, which she would graciously provide. And she said, I knew what the possibilities were, right? Like when I came in, you know, um, there was H, you know, there were, there were different imprints that really, they, they were a bit more diverse. So you'd go to work and you'd see a handful of black people and they were publishing black authors. And so she said, I knew the possibility. And, you know, of course it took some time for her to ascend the ranks, but she's there. Um, how do you feel if you have an opinion on spaces that are homogenous, but on the other side, right? They're not, they're not, you know, plain milk, they're the chocolate milk, or are those sort of spaces important to you? Or do you think, you know, in terms of producing the best work, providing everyone with ample opportunity, um, diversifying voices, all of that, is it more about mixing everyone up and integrating everyone? Or is it also kind of holding spaces for different types of people for their comfortability? Why can't it be both is always, you know, we have Burger King and McDonald's. Yeah. We have Nike and Adi. It's always curious to me that when it comes to issues of race, we want it, it has to be Bloods or Crips. It has to be Capula to Montagues. When typically, aren't we always trying to go, why not all of it? Mm-hmm. That we, we clearly need, we're at a point in our history in this country and in publishing where we just simply need imprints that are exclusively BIPOC. But there's something incriminating about that. And this is what I mean is, are we saying, and maybe, yeah, maybe no, are we saying that we can't be equitable in any other way? That we have to have these special imprints because we can't expect the people like Knopf and Viking and William Morrow and Crown to, to be equitable and to have a representation that reflects back the citizenry of this country. We're 30, Black, brown, Asian, 38% of the population. Is that, it's not 38% of publishing though. And it's certainly not 38% of the books we publish. That it seems like a lot when there used to be none, right? There's that joke Eddie Mark Murphy used to tell, if you're starving and then you give somebody a cracker, it'll be the greatest thing that they've ever had. Is this a cracker? Is this a saltine? Like that sort of thing. What you, how'd you make this, you know, right? So yes, I get it more than ever, but go and compare that, even though we're 38% of the population, compare it to the white counterparts. I, I get it that there are more books by Latinx people being published than ever before, but look at it in comparison to how many Latinx people you have in the country, right? And then it's simple math to see the disparity let me ask you this, how many of those books get reviewed in the times? 
against their white counterparts? How many book reviewers look like us? How about at the New Yorker? How about at the New Republic? How about at the Monthly? How about at Plowshares? How about Paris Review? Right? In all of the golden calves. Right? Uh, how about Carcass? Until recently, until recently, if they had one, I would have been impressed. Until very recently. And again, measure it against how long all of these magazines have been in circulation. What a conversation. And there's much more where that came from. Make sure to check out the full exchange and video between Marjorie Hanna and Michael Mejia on girlsrightnowmedia.org. Thank you again for joining us for another episode of Writing Our Way to Wellness, a podcast published bi-weekly on Thursdays. Follow along as we foster spaces where emotions are seen with an open heart and words received with reverence. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the Girls Right Now Substack at girlsrightnowmedia.org and catch us wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is a production of Girls Right Now. It was recorded by Marjorie Hanna, edited by Sally Familia, and produced with the support of Catherine Dustin and Bonnie Curra. Thank you always for your time and energy, and remember that your truest self is the most valuable version of yourself.